It's been nearly 100 days now since Russia invaded Ukraine, triggering what has been a simply awful war. We we don't really know the casualty count, uh, but we see that it is continuing. The war has shifted, of course, to the east and the south of the country, away from places such as Kyiv, a little bit away from uh, Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv. Uh, but the fighting continues, and it's fierce, uh, mostly in the Donbass region, uh, where fighting has been going on really since 2014, but certainly it's intensified as Russia makes a push in that region of the country. Meantime, the international community continues to work in the most significant effort yet to punish Russia for its war in Ukraine. The EU, the European Union, has agreed to ban the overwhelming majority of Russian oil imports. Now, the move apparently came after some tense negotiations uh, that tested how far the bloc is willing to go to ostracize Moscow. Uh, from the moment Russia invaded on February 24th, the West has sought to make Russia pay economically. But targeting the lucrative energy sector was seen really is something of a last resort in Europe. A lot of countries there are heavily dependent on Russian energy, less so now as they're trying to wean themselves off it, uh, but certainly not an easy transition for them to make a costly one in many ways. So EU leaders agreed to that ban um, into the bloc over the next six months. The majority of Russian oil imports will be banned over the next six months, uh, although it, reply, it relies on Russia, obviously, for a lot of its oil and natural gas. Um Speaking in Brussels, the Polish Prime Minister, Mateusz uh, Morawiecki, says the sole strategy is returning Ukraine to a free nation. If uh, at the end of the, of the day, Ukraine survives as a, as a sovereign state, which is our sole objective, and this is why we are supporting uh, Ukraine through all sorts of different means, um, then this is our victory. That is Polish Prime Minister Mateusz Morawiecki uh, speaking in Brussels about that decision by the EU. Meantime, Canada's imposed uh, sanctions on a former Olympic gymnast who is reportedly Russian President Vladimir Putin's partner. Uh, Alina Kabayeva is one of 22 associates of the Russian regime added to the sanctions list over the invasion of Ukraine. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie today was asked why sanctions are being announced on almost a weekly basis. We're doing it along with also allies. So what we are doing is sometimes we take the lead, sometimes we work with the Americans, sometimes we work with the Europeans, and at the end of the day, when all the G7 ministers gather, we know that we're working on the same entities and individuals. So nearly 100 days in, we've seen massive sanctions against Russia. We've seen billions of dollars worth of aid being poured into Ukraine, including through weapons and other forms of support. But what is it like on the ground in Ukraine now? Are these international efforts paying off? What still needs to be done? Well, joining me now from Poland is Don Bowser, a Canadian law enforcement and security advisor who is just back from an extensive trip through all parts of the country. Uh, Don, thank you so much for your time tonight. Thanks. Good to be back. You've been, you just came back uh, from some time in Ukraine. What's, what, and you were all over the place. Uh, how would you describe it? What, has it changed? It feels like from afar, since uh, Kyiv has been, been less threatened, that things have started to shift quite dramatically in the country. Yeah, I, I, this time I was crisscrossing the country. Um, basically, I started a, a new assignment looking at, uh, stabilization within the newly liberated territories and went uh, up to the front line in Kharkiv this time um, and with some stops along the way. Yes, the war has fundamentally shifted as the Russian uh, advances stopped and they've pulled back from Kiev and from Kharkiv city itself. 
We've seen a big shift in the war. They've concentrated everything now in the Donbass and, and down south. Um, so the war has switched to, to start to look a lot more like it has for the last eight years. So it's shifting now into these large-scale battles uh, in the Donbass. How much has, I mean, when you, on your tour, I mean, you're obviously in Kharkiv, you're seeing things, you're seeing areas liberated or liberated from the Russians. Are we seeing the same sorts of atrocities that we saw in Bucha and other places? We're just not hearing about them as much? No. Uh, so, uh, yes. And I, I managed to, to go around to Bucha Airpin, uh, Gostomo just after they had been liberated as well, um, to, to look at the situation. What we're seeing is that there isn't as many reported incidences of war crimes um, that have come out of this. Uh, so I talked to a number of people in the occupied areas to, to see what was going on. And it comes really down to the discipline of individual commanders. Um, so what we see is that uh, it depends who's on the ground. There were a number of atrocities that were committed uh, within the Kharkiv region. But we're seeing a fundamental difference um, in how the troops acted there as opposed to Kiev. Uh, people have given a number of reasons for this, including the fact that perhaps they were looking at a longer occupation um, and, and had some sort of plan, or it came down to more disciplined uh, troops that were there. But uh, yeah, and from what people were telling me on the, on the ground is that how they were acting towards them were different. So uh, it'd be very interesting uh, to see what's going on in, in Chernigov and Sumy and to compare um, that. I mean, what went on in Bucha and their pin, um, which has been reported widely. I mean, you just see it when you see it firsthand, mass graves and everything else, and you hear it firsthand from the victims, um, what the situation is. It's, it's pretty staggering, the level of violence that has gone on. Um, the problem is now in Kharkiv is it is still very much on the front line. So they were shelling the entire time we were there. Uh, we tried to go to a community. One day it would be completely shut off. We couldn't get to it because of shelling. The next day it would be open um, and then shelling would come back and, and you'd, have to, you'd have to leave the region uh, quite quickly. So the situation in Kharkiv is still very fluid. So again, it would be very key to see what's going on in Chernigov and Sumy in terms of liberated and also down in Mikolaev and the areas around Mikolaev that have been liberated. I mean, you were there assessing sort of what next, uh, the, the impact on individual Ukrainians, the economy, how they're living their day-to-day -day lives must be, I mean, we're nearly a hundred days into this now. Uh, it must be staggering as you mentioned. Yeah. Well, people want need to get on with their lives in terms of earning incomes. Um, so the, the, the attitude of most of the people that you see in Kiev now is that they want to get on with uh, earning their own income. People don't want to live on humanitarian assistance. So the number of people that have returned to Kiev, for example, the city is almost half full. Um, so, so many people have come back. At one point, there was 30,000 a day were returning. And these are mostly people who want to go back to their lives. They want to continue to work. They want to uh, open their business. They want to go back to, to what they have. So what we're seeing now is that livelihoods is, is a major issue and being able to, to go ahead with your livelihood. 
uh, one of the things that struck me the most about Harkip because it's a, you know, a, a major uh, agricultural as well as industrial region and farmers are going back and plowing their fields, even though there's a lot of unexploded ordnance. So we talked to one farmer whose tractor had been blowing up and he said, uh, listen, is there any way you can get me a tractor? Because, you know, I have to, I have to, you know, plant um, and we, and we have to get food for the animals and things like that. So people are trying to get on with their life as much as possible, even though they're faced with uh, shelling every day. Um, same thing in one of the other communities uh, to the north, Degachi, uh was the same. Even though it's been constantly shelled, people were still trying to set up little mobile shops, uh, little pop-up shops and sell because there was nothing else open in the town. So you see a lot of people just struggling to try and go back to some sort of uh, way to earn their own income and some level of normalcy. Last we spoke, you were on uh, on the border trying to get uh, much-needed supplies into the country. I would imagine now that those needs are, are shifting. Are, are we responding fast enough to, to, the, to the shifting realities on the ground in Ukraine right now? Well, it, it depends on who. Uh, in terms of body armor and protective gear, a lot more has come in. So that need has been shifted quite a bit. Uh, I'm still, uh, you know, um, delivering... Um, uh, some protective gear, but mostly I focus on on uh, more equipment that's needed for some of the elite troops and, and the special equipment that they need. And we see this across the board. Also, a lot of equipment is being destroyed, um, so it has to be replaced. So the essential equipping of people with basic things like uniforms and protective gear, that sort of shifted on absolutely at the moment. Um, and we just see that now that we're entering the next phase of the conflict uh, in which it's, it's, uh, it's really going to be this long-term slugfest out in the Donbass, the big struggle is still getting it as far forward as possible. Lots of reports of soldiers on the front lines in the east. And I, I managed to get some equipment out to Svitogorsk, out, uh, out really on the front line that was essentially needed. But the reports that we're getting back is still... People uh, need um, a lot of necessary equipment, even though the reports from the government are is that almost everything is inside. Question is, where is it? Um, and the distribution of it has been very difficult. One thing is the fuel crisis. There just hasn't been fuel to enable trucks to go through. So that's been a, a key problem with keeping stuff um, backwards. But, uh, but the front lines need to be equipped now more than ever. And so it's really the sense of urgency of getting the stuff as far forward as possible. Speaking with Don Bowser, he's a Canadian law enforcement and security advisor who's been volunteering in Ukraine as well. He's just come back from a, from a lengthy trip, having crisscrossed the country. We're talking about the current state. We're nearly 100 days into this war now, imagine. Current state of affairs there. Uh, and whether or not, we'll, when we come back, we'll talk a bit about whether or not the international community is responding still in a way that's helping uh, or what more can be done. That's next. I'm speaking with Don Bowser from Poland tonight. He's a Canadian law enforcement and security advisor. He's just spent time in Ukraine all across the country, including uh, the front lines in the Donbass, as well as in Kharkiv, uh, a city right near the Russian border, but also uh, close to the front lines. Uh, Don, is, as far as what's happening now with this conflict, is the amount of support coming in from Ukraine's partners, what, what's needed? Is it still enough? 
No. I mean, what you see is that material that's being brought in is largely through local initiatives. It's private initiatives bringing um, equipment in. The thousands of volunteers that are working on the ground who are Ukrainians who are delivering this um, are, are the ones that are keeping this moving forward. The international community is still very much missing in action. Um, so of all the places that I visited, almost every time that I would see humanitarian aid being brought in, it was local initiatives. Very little is being brought in by the international community, despite the hundreds of millions that they've collected for Ukraine. So I keep asking myself, where are the resources? Why is this not being deployed? Um, where are the people? You rarely see any sort of international vehicle. I saw two Red Cross vehicles, um, and that's pretty much it. I think I've seen several UN over the last couple of months. Um, so it's really staggering. And this is what Ukrainians themselves keep asking, where the hell is the international community still? We're three months into this war. Um, you can deploy to every war zone in the world, but somehow... Ukraine is so unique that you can't. Um, so it's causing a lot of questions within Ukraine and a lot of negative responses of the international community from Ukrainians. The people they see who are doing this are largely their own local organizations and other volunteer organizations. I mean, we had the same conversation uh, two months ago that, that the, the international community was missing in action. I mean, what, what could be the long-term consequences here if, if no one shows up? Certainly on the ground in Ukraine, uh, there, there has to be some disillusionment with the support they're receiving. Yeah, I mean, uh, what we keep hearing, especially about the UN agencies, is they don't want to see them. Uh, they don't want to see them now and they don't want to see them after the war. So I, they know this. They know that this is very much a problem. The lack of presence, the very small footprint that they've had, and the fact that they have not been responding to the actual needs. Um, so there are a lot of questions, both from Ukrainians and from outside, exactly what is going on so late into this conflict that you still do not see a massive response. In Canada alone, the UN agencies have collected hundreds of millions of dollars Every time that I've asked this question about how much do you actually spend on operations in Ukraine starts a little dance. Well, we give it to local people. Well, who? What percentage of the funds collected? They can't answer that. Um, so we see it across the board. Even the international NGOs have been very weak in their responses. We still do not see it. You see some on the ground, mostly in Lviv. So Lviv is full of international uh, uh uh, agencies sort of wandering around, but further east, you just don't see it. And that's where the need is. So in some of the towns that I saw, they, they had almost uh, no humanitarian assistance. So it's not only them that they need to feed, it's also the troops that they need to feed. So the need is, is still very desperate. And it's been largely private donations and private initiatives of the Ukrainian volunteers that have kept the, the supplies going. Um, and you can just see it by by the number of, of vehicles that, that go out to these communities. What should listeners here that in Canada know then about the situation on the ground? Because clearly on this side, you know, we're seeing the appeals, we're seeing, you know, the not the rosy, I wouldn't call them rosy, but we're certainly seeing uh, the pats on the back for, for jobs well done uh, here uh, by a lot of international agencies. Uh, if, what should listeners know then about the reality of what's happening in the most uh, in the most uh, places in Ukraine where this help is most needed? 
Well, I mean, there's several things. We still have this rush of international people who want to play out some sort of war fantasy. Mm -hmm. So we have endless streams of helpers coming across the border who haven't been admitted into Ukrainian forces. So there's, in fact, a number of Canadian illegally armed groups who are now wandering around Ukraine um, trying to claim that they're supposed to be doing humanitarian stuff. They're not they don't have the experience um, and they're not connected with any other groups. So uh, we, I heard directly and saw a lot of evidence of some people who are claiming to be combat rescue teams wandering around the battle space, which is just completely insane. Um, so you have these people who show up who want to help, but they really don't want to do the real needed humanitarian assistance, which is driving vehicles out into these zones. Uh, Lex Brukovsky, who I've been cooperating with, a fisherman from a uh, Ukrainian-Canadian fisherman from uh, Nova Scotia. He's driving every day out into some of the most hot spots in the country, out to Bakhmut. And his group has a real problem with getting drivers to go out, local or anybody else. Uh, anybody does it once and they don't want to go back out again. So he's a real exception. Of course, he can do it because he speaks Ukrainian, um, but even to get people to load trucks and stuff like that, so I really wish that all of the uh, all of the Call of Duty fans and Airsoft League guys who keep showing up at the border pretending that they want to go into combat with no combat experience would do something helpful like load those trucks and help get supplies further east. That would be the most useful thing that we see. Uh, I'm sorry, but it, it, when you just see it on the ground, it's really staggering about people's fantasies about what is going on in Ukraine and the cold, hard reality. Uh, you know, trying to get supplies into these uh, towns. So the real need now is for people to really come and do real help, not come and, and try to do your own thing, but join legitimate volunteer organizations, which are doing amazing work. So there exists as a huge network across the country. So I was talking with the former Minister of Economy uh, and one of the other big organizations that's trying to help volunteers, Ukraine uh, Trust Chain, about this. Um, and, you know, you just see that what's needed now is really to coordinate with all these different volunteer bodies and have people doing the real work, which is getting the supplies out as quickly as possible. Don Bowser, as always, thank you so much for the update. Thanks for your insight. Yep. No worries. Happy to talk to you anytime.